Well, we're going to build on what we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about how they will know us by our love. Today, we're going to follow that up with they will know us by our care. And um, before we dive in, I want to let you know that last Sunday, I got a call from Gary Drinkwater, and April, his wife, died on Sunday morning while we were in church. Um, We'll get out uh, their address. Flood Gary with cards, will you? April died much too young, and uh, we had, about a month ago, I had given an update, and we started praying for them. They just retired to Florida about two years ago, and um, April was sick the whole time they were there. So we're going to include them in our prayers this morning, or include April, uh, Gary in our prayers this morning, but join me. Father God, we have just watched a scenario before our eyes here that probably brings up a lot of situations we've been in. It's hard for us to love and to care for people sometimes when our feelings are running in the opposite direction and we don't want to. But your spirit and your truth work on our hearts and work on our minds and you are changing us from the way that we want to be on our own to who you want us to be when we are guided by your love, your truth, and your spirit, and your word. So help us to understand what this nugget of scripture in James is guiding us toward. Give us tools to be able to live this out and not just talk about it on Sunday. And help us to take steps in the direction of demonstrating the care that you have shown to us and the care that you want us to deliver to others in your name and because we are your people. Change us where you need to change us. Turn our thinking around where that needs to happen. Give us opportunities to take steps in the right direction. Lord, this morning we lift up Gary Drinkwater and we ask that you would surround him with strength and with compassion, with your ability to console, and as he figures out next steps for what life is going to be like in this next chapter. Thank you for giving him the resilience that you did all during April's illness. Lord, we're sorry to see her leave this life, but we are also grateful that April found Jesus here at North River and that her life was changed because of her time here. Ask that you will allow us to make the most of every day In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, I watched a video of an interview between Joe Rogan and actor Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey, if you're not aware, became well-known for his roles in a number of movies like A Time to Kill and The Wedding Planner and Dallas Buyers Club. The interview took place two years ago, and Rogan asked McConaughey if he was religious and he answered that, yes, he is religious. And he emphasized that in a day when so many people say that they are spiritual but not religious, he wanted to say that he really is religious in a spiritual way. Now, whatever you think of Matthew McConaughey and the roles he plays on film, he stated very clearly that over the past few years, he's gone back to examine the words of Jesus in the Bible, and he's trying to use the sayings of Jesus as, as he understands them, as guides for life. 
This is very unusual for somebody who's a very well-known Hollywood actor to make an admission like that in public. All this raises a point. We have a love-hate relationship with the idea of religion. Have you ever experienced that? Let me explain how I understand that. For the past few decades, a number of Christians have used the words, the terms religion and religious only in a negative way. And when we do this, we end up saying that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I've done that. I'll bet some of you have done that as well. But there's a problem with that concept. Yes, Christian faith involves a relationship with God through Jesus, but it's more than that. If we only leave it at that level, anybody can decide what their relationship with Jesus is, and it's going to look a million different ways, and it really has no depth or clarity to what it means. There are also expectations that affect the way that Christians live and how Christians fulfill the mission of Christ and and how God's transforming work in the life of a Christian changes us over time. And most people see these expectations and this sense of mission as religion. So we try to get away from the word religion sometimes because of what it has meant to us in past experiences, but most of how we live out our Christian faith is what people commonly understand to be religion. When we move away from the concept of religion, we are trying to get away from the idea that our faith is simply a set of outward behaviors or that religion is simply a set of routines or rules that we go through in a church service that get left behind as soon as we leave the church building. And then comes this actor, Matthew McConaughey, who has gone back to church and is reading the Bible over the past few years, and he says he wants to avoid what has become an empty trend of identifying as spiritual but not religious. Instead, he says that he's become spiritually religious by contemplating and increasingly trying to live out the words of Jesus. All right, here's the question that I have for this morning. Does the Bible clearly define what religion is in the eyes of God? So good morning. Uh, That's the question we're going to tackle today. I'm so glad you're with us here today at at our North River campus. And for those of you who are watching online from home or wherever you may be today, two weeks ago, Pastor Todd launched this series, They Will Know Us By Our Love. And somewhere about a month before that, I came into a staff meeting and said, I think what we're going to do as our next series is going to key off of that old song and they know, they'll know we are Christians by our love. I said, if I started a sentence and they'll know us by, how would you finish it? And we came up with a number of one-word themes. Love was the easiest one because that comes right out of the scriptures, but we answered that in a number of different ways and that's really what's behind this particular series. So... Each week in this series, we're trying to fill in that statement. How does God expect us to be known by those who are outside the walls of the church? So in week one, we saw that they will know us by our story, the way that we talk about what God is doing in our lives. Last Sunday, we added they will know us by our love, and this morning we come to part three. Our topic is they will know us by our care. So let's dive into this. Here's the first observation we find from James. The, uh, the simple verse that was read for us the, uh, a little while ago was James 1.27. This is the verse that comes right before this. 
James 1.26, and it's telling us, don't waste your time with religion that is worthless. Verse 26 says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So here's James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he introduces us to this idea of religion that can be seen as worthless. Right away, we can see that our concern about religion is actually a biblical concept. The Bible writers and the apostles of Jesus were concerned about empty or worthless religion, and they wanted us to avoid it at all costs. But notice that James doesn't tell us that all religion is worthless. Instead, he talks about the combination of religion and an undisciplined tongue. What's behind that is that James was concerned about hypocrisy, seeing ourselves as religious people, yet not backing that up with self-control, especially when it comes to the use of the tongue and the words that we say and the way that we say them. Later on in his letter, the New Testament letter of James, he would write about the power of the tongue and how words can undermine or contradict our religious behaviors. Hypocrisy that he was concerned about is when we say one thing and we do the opposite, and this is what he wanted us to avoid. The same idea that some religious acts are worthless is expressed throughout the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God by violating the one prohibition that had been given to them, and they went ahead and they ate the fruit that came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't the tree of knowledge. Knowledge was okay. It's a good thing. But they had not experienced evil before, and this is the first time they experienced evil alongside with good, and it wrecked everything for them. And then in Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to their first two sons, Cain and Abel, Both of these sons bring offerings to the Lord, but one of those offerings is not deemed as acceptable. Instead of bringing an animal sacrifice like Abel brought, Cain brought vegetables. And Abel's offering was looked upon with favor by the Lord, and Cain's was not. The storyline assumes that they knew what God expected. And so when Cain's offering was not looked upon with favor, jealousy worked its way in, and jealousy turned into hatred, and Cain ended up killing his brother over his insistence upon creating his own standards for religion. That's really what Cain was doing. Religious acts, religious patterns that don't lead to spiritual change are seen as the epitome of hypocrisy in our world. That was true in the time of Cain and Abel, and it's true today as well. King David wrote in the Old Testament that God doesn't really want bulls and goats to be sacrificed, but a broken and contrite heart. David understood the difference between religious acts and the condition of the heart that's behind those acts. That was the religion that God was after right from the beginning. Later on in the Old Testament, Isaiah wrote that God detests meaningless ceremonies. He wants us to learn to do right, to seek justice, to encourage the oppressed, to defend the fatherless, to plead the cause of the widow. And then Jesus added in Matthew 25, in what's known as the Olivet Discourse, that at the end, the Lord will separate the righteous from the unrighteous as a shepherd separates sheep from goats at the end of the day. And a lot of that will have to do with how we have lived out the teachings of Jesus, not just 
the words that we say. So the first thing that James would say is, don't waste your time with religion that is worthless. In other words, religion that's just empty words. Here's the second instruction from James. Emphasize or pursue religion that is pure. And so the main verse that we have for today is James 1.27, which says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now we come back to the primary verse that we're focusing on today. James writes about religion in a positive light, religion that is pure and faultless. Notice that James is not telling us to avoid being religious. He's telling us that some forms of religious may be worthless, but others are pure and faultless, and he wants us to focus on the pure kind of religion. So what is pure religion? Or perhaps we could call this worthwhile religion. Think about it. James lived in a day that was full of religions and religious activities. The Greeks and the Romans had multiple deities that they worshipped, and their idols and temples were prominent in every city. James is trying to steer us away from this kind of religious activity and more, and so he marks, or he identifies three marks of pure religion. The first mark comes in verse 26. He says, you know, pure religion avoids self-deception. So in that verse, James wrote that religious people who do not control their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So James is telling us that the religion we walk needs to be matched by the way that we talk. Some people can be religious on the outside, but it doesn't change us on the inside. And the way that we talk gives that away. It raises the question, is God transforming the way that you and I use words? Is he transforming the way that we talk to each other, the way that we talk to other people? The Bible tells us that religion that honors God will ultimately transform us from the inside out so that changes are continuing to happen. We're never the completed project. We're always in process, but that God is constantly reforming and even transforming us to be more like Jesus. He describes the imbalance between our walk and our talk as something that can lead to us being deceived. Religion that does not transform the whole person leads us into self-deception. The second mark is that pure religion is other-centered. Now James adds that pure religion looks after widows and orphans in distress. These were two important concerns for the early church. Many widows were cut off or shunned by their families when they chose to follow Jesus. So the book of the Acts of the Apostles describes how they responded to that. And there was a meals ministry that broke out in the very first church. And deacons were created in order to, to take that process over and to begin the, the process of how caring happened within the local church. The earliest Christians also adopted children who were abandoned by Roman culture Roman culture valued boys more highly than girls. And so it became very common that when a woman would give birth to a, a little girl, they would take that little girl out to the edge of the city where the dump was, and they'd leave that child there to die. 
And the earliest Christians would walk out there and they'd find those little children and they'd adopt them and they'd raise them as their own and they would love them because they valued so highly the image of God in every person. And they determined that every human life is worthwhile. It was this kind of action or religion in action that began to change the way that Christian faith was viewed in the ancient world. Non-Christians began to look at this and, and decided this is a better alternative than the way that we've been living. These Christians have something. There was a kind of care that they were showing that was otherworldly from a Roman point of view. And Christian faith slowly began to gain favor because of the way Christians treated others and the way they, that they treated others in the world around them. Pure religion, James is telling us, is not limited to care for just orphans and widows, but these were prominent concerns in the early church. They revealed a religious heart that is other-centered. Raises the question, is our faith all about me and what I get and you and what you get, or... Are we becoming other-centered people because of what Jesus is doing inside of us? And then the third mark is that pure religion avoids being polluted by the world. Essentially, James was pointing out that moral and ethical corruption is incompatible with pursuing the heart of God. If we claim to know God and follow Jesus, we will avoid we will avoid sexual exploits that destroy marriages, that pollute the way that we see other people, or that take advantage of the vulnerable. If we claim to know God and follow Jesus, we will be honest and avoid corruption in business and in politics because we desire to honor Jesus in everything. So here's the main idea that I'm trying to get at this morning through this one primary verse of Scripture, James 1.27. Pure religion shows up in the way we talk, in the way that we care, and it refuses to stay in church. I'll explain what that means in a minute here. The third observation is that this kind of care flows from the new command that we talked about last Sunday. We looked at John 13, 34 that says, A new command I give you, this is from Jesus, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So last week, we saw how Jesus gave the mandate for us to love one another, and then the model, the mandate was his command to love one another, that it starts in the church, this kind of love is more than a simple feeling. This kind of love is costly. It's sacrificial. It's communal. It requires that we belong to and participate in a Christian community that grows more deeply in love and intimacy toward God and toward each other. But the standard is Jesus. He says, as I have loved you, so you are to love others in that way. So we look at Jesus through the parables and through the gospels and, and we learn his approach and then we start to follow his approach. Many people have boiled this down to a very simple phrase, what would Jesus do? Which is a, an extremely helpful guideline. What would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus treat this person? How would Jesus love in this complex, messy situation that I find myself in? When we slow down and we ask that question and we think about his example in the parables or his example in real life situations, often that guides us in the way that we provide care for others. But here's the fourth observation. This kind of religion that James is talking about doesn't stay at church. 
Let's go back to that verse. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Notice that last statement, to keep oneself by being polluted by the world. Now, there are times when the culture at large is shaped by Christian values. That has happened in varying degrees in past centuries here in the United States and abroad. But there's never been a time when this has been done perfectly or completely. There are times when living out our faith causes us to stand apart from our culture. This can allow Christians to have a correcting or or reshaping role within a culture. Sometimes this moves Christians to oppose part of the culture at large. And all this fits because Jesus says that we are to function as salt and light, which leads me to think that our role is to aim for a slow transformational impact within the culture, that we have a a preserving impact impact and and maybe even a a change-oriented impact on the culture at large. Maybe there are times when the world looks at the way that the church operates, if we really do what Jesus says, and they conclude like they did with the early church, this is a better way of living. They have something here that our society at large does not. Secular culture is very good at doing a few things. First, it continually forms and revises its own sense of morality. This is what a society does when it pushes God away and says, I don't want that kind of religion. I don't want the Bible. I don't want a God who has moral expectations of me. When we do that, as a society, we start to form our own moral expectations of what's good, what's expected of everybody, and that society pushes that on us. And then it tells people who choose to live by biblical standards that you are to stay in your lane. Have you ever experienced that? What they mean by that is, what you do in church is fine as long as it's in church, but don't let it spread outside. (laughs) Beware when you hear political figures who say that we have freedom of worship. What the First Amendment in the Constitution actually promises is freedom of religion, which is much more broad than freedom of worship. Freedom of worship says, we don't care what you do inside the four walls of your church building. That's where worship happens in their eyes. Freedom of religion says, no, I can live by the guidelines of my God wherever I go. That's what the founders fought for in this country. And there is a difference. Sometimes our culture tells us, stay in your lane. It's okay that you have your faith, but don't try to live it out before me or force it upon me. Freedom of religion is broader that impacts the way that we live every day. So James is calling us to a kind of bold Christian living that refuses to stay in its assigned lane. Do you want to have a faith that impacts the world? Live your faith outside of church. Live it wherever you go. It doesn't mean that you're, you're pushing Bible verses on everybody. It doesn't mean that you're changing every single conversation to throw God in there and, and to ruin the conversation in a sense. What it means is we do the slow, patient thing that 
that drama sketch was showing us at the end. We're going to live it out and let them see it and ask questions about it. And then we're ready to answer when people ask why. It's not for church only. It starts there, but pure religion lives it out wherever we go. This is part of our mission as a church. Our vision statement says that we are people being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. Our vision is not to be a bunch of people who are religious only inside these four walls. The love of God we find in Jesus compels us to reach outward. And the more we experience the love of God, the more we know the truth of God's word, the more that we love each other, and the more that we care for those in need, the more God is able to use us to have a transformational impact on the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. There are a number of ways you can do that. I found as Todd was interviewing Anne a few moments ago about the Go Team, and there are a number of Go Team events that demonstrate the way that we care, or you can get involved with our deacons team. There are a number of things that they're doing behind the scenes to help people in ways that we don't often broadcast publicly because we don't try to identify who we're helping or ring a bell and say, look at us, look at us. But there are all kinds of wonderful things that happen behind the scenes. Or there, there's this Easter Meals project would be a great way to show that we care. Pure religion shows up in the way we talk, in the way that we care, and it refuses to stay in church. It refuses to stay in that little lane that society wants to carve out for us. Here's the fifth observation, last one that I want to end with. God works as we dare to care. About 25 years ago, as part of a gathering, a very small gathering of pastors who met weekly and we prayed together and we talked about what was working and what was not working and what we were learning. And as we were entering Holy Week one year, the Easter week, one of the men asked, more like insisted that I do him a favor. He asked me to come to his church and dress like a servant and wash the feet of about 15 middle and high school students who were part of his youth group. He insisted. In fact, he pressured me a bit, saying that I was the only one who could do this. Now, you have to realize, for pastors, Holy Week is a very busy time. And we had a tiny staff back then, and this was going to take place on Thursday, the night before uh, Good Friday, and we had a couple of Good Friday services that were coming, and we had extra Easter services that we were preparing for. So I was working overtime, and then here's just one more thing that this guy wants to throw at me at the last minute. He insisted, and I reluctantly agreed. And then I went home and told my wife about it, and Sue and I were both working and raising kids in those years, so it didn't help that I had accepted one more thing that pulled me away from another dinner, another evening, that I would have normally been home with our kids in a busy week. And this was one more time when I said yes in a way that I wished I hadn't, and so I went off on that Thursday night begrudgingly, saying, I can't believe he asked me to do this, and I'm going to be a servant, I'm going to wash these feet of these kids I don't know. I get there. He hands me a pair of sandals and asks me to put them on. And then he gives me this, this brown robe that looked like a Franciscan monk's robe with, with a hood. And so when you put the hood on, you really couldn't see who was behind this thing. 
And then he said, uh, you know, I've been working on this spiritual project with these high school kids in our youth ministry, and this is the culmination because we've been talking about the final night between Jesus and the disciples and all that stuff that happens uh, on that evening before Jesus is betrayed and handed over to the guards. So I'm going to bring them in the room, and you don't know what I've been teaching them, but they're going to come in one by one, and I, as they're going to walk up to you, I want you to wash their feet. So I, I saw the first kid come in, and I, I bowed down, and as I bowed down, my back started to hurt. You know? I'm on my knees, and I've got this bowl of water and a towel, and this kid comes up, and I take off his, he sits on a little stool, I take off his shoes, and I take off his socks, and then I start to bathe his feet in this basin of water, and I dry his feet with the towel. And then he stands up, and I stand up, and only at that point do I look him in the eyes and couldn't say a word. I was instructed, I, I can't use my top gift. I can't teach. I'm not supposed to say a word. All I can do is serve in this way. The next kid comes in, and the next kid comes in. And when I get about halfway through the group doing this, my heart that had been rushed and begrudging and thinking I got pressured into something I didn't want to do began to change. Because I'm looking at these kids and I'm realizing they don't know me. They don't know who I am. They don't know what I'm, but in their eyes in this moment, we're reenacting a situation where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. And it's like Jesus is looking in their eyes. By the time we got halfway through that group, I was a mess of tears and tears just flowing down my face one by one as couldn't say a word with each one of these kids but washing their feet and hoping they would understand something about the way that Jesus cares about people. And my heart was breaking for these kids that I would never know. And I got to the last of the 15, and I washed this kid's feet, and he walked out the door. I took off the robe, and I walked home. And I was wrecked. About two years later, the same group of pastors was together and we were talking about a number of things and somehow that event came up and I said, yeah, you talked me into that thing and I didn't want to do it, but uh, it had a profound impact on me. I said, why did you ask me? He said, well, what you didn't know is I asked all the other guys first and they all said no. (laughs) You were the last person I wanted to ask because you were the most arrogant person in the room. And I realized he was right. Here's the lesson for me. Sometimes when we get involved and we simply do the things that God expects of us, he changes our hearts in the process. And on that day, he changed mine. So here's the idea. Pure religion, we are never completely pure. We never get it perfectly right. But pure religion shows up in the way that we talk, in the way that we care, and it refuses to stay in church or to stay in our lane. It has power when it goes outside into our world. Sometimes that power changes us. Sometimes that power changes somebody else. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the example of Jesus. 
in showing us how he loved and how he cared first. Thank you for the risk that Jesus is willing to take with us in not only infusing us with his love, not only forgiving our sins and forgiving us a whole new spiritual start in life, but in daring to use us to convey to other people in this world that there is a God who deeply cares about every human being on the face of this earth. And that once in a while, in the face of his people who are serving in the way that he wants us to serve, we can see the face of Jesus. Lord, help us to live out our faith, not just talk about it. And we need your help. We need help from the Holy Spirit every day to do that. We need not only the advice and the words of Jesus, we need the company of Jesus to do that. So walk with us this week as we dare to show that you care. In his name, amen.